Browns, Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Or Lean's Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean, inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron, offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. By Birds and Beans Shade Grown Bird Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com. Good morning and welcome to our show. It's our show number 622 coming to you direct from America's hometown, Plymouth, Massachusetts, at the headquarters of the marvelous conservation organization Wildlands Trust, which works to conserve and permanently protect native habitats and farmland and lands of high ecological and scenic value that serve to keep communities healthy and residents connected to the natural world. You can find them on the web and they are worth looking for at Wildlands trust.org that's wildlandstrust.org so we're broadcasting live here on the 30th of april yesterday in cities and towns in the u.s and all over the world people's climate march events were held with lots of knowledgeable folks telling us about the serious implications of climate change and today here on talking birds we'll attempt to learn what birds are telling us about climate change that's our main topic today and we'll learn about the bird climate dynamic from a man who knows a thing or two about the subject, he's Trevor Lloyd Evans, Director of Land Bird Conservation with the internationally known organization Manomet, also lake, located right here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And he is right here with us in person. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Ray. Good morning, everyone. So we'll talk about our topic, Trevor, what birds are telling us about climate change in just a bit. But I wonder if you'd tell us first about Manomet, it's got quite a history. Tell us about this organization and the work it does all over the world, really. Manomet goes way back, and uh, we started with birds, and we're talking about birds today, but Manomet does more than that. I'll even look at our little brochure here. It says, we believe people can live and work today in ways that will enable our world to thrive and prosper tomorrow. And that really gets to our, our sort of core philosophy, which is we want to do the science, we want to do the conservation science, we want to inform conservation um, protection and then we want to work with the people who can make this happen on the ground so it's a, a functioning real science where it will work on the ground and strong core of education mixed in with it you started off as the Manomet bird observatory how many years ago was that and how has that progressed how has how has it evolved that was back in 1966 before my time as you can tell from the funny accent i only came over here in 1972 and that was for two years, and that didn't work because I'm still here. Um, but interestingly, Manomite right on the coast there is a very good place to study bird migration. Uh, my colleague Wayne Peterson was down there looking at ducks. Um, Brian Harrington came to work on shorebirds, and we're going to hear from Brian a little later on. And I came over to work on landbirds. And um, using very fine mist nets in a very standardized manner, we now have over 50 years of data of landbird migration. We do use U.S. Fish and Wildlife bands. We put them on the individuals. This enables us to not only look at the number of individuals and track population change but some of the things we just didn't realize back in those days was that gosh we're going to have data over 50 years that will show birds as sensitive environmental indicators even to things like climate change and that's how we get to today's talk 
And how does that relate when, when we talk about climate change, when you're doing mist netting, for example? And by the way, thank you for letting me release a palm warbler uh, that had been uh, caught in the mist nets. Uh, that was a couple of years ago years. now, or maybe maybe several uh, years ago now. But what, what, what can you tell us in a, in a capsule form about uh, what effects you see just from your experience in the last few years? Um, this is all correlative, of course, so it goes rather rather like the uh, the Rachel Carson and those earlier earlier sort of uh, studies of are chemicals bad for birds, are birds indicating that they're bad for humans. And so we're finding that birds are very sensitive indicators of climate change. I think the important thing is that Manomet and about three other organizations around the country um, now have over 50 years of data. And with 50 years of data, we just banded our gray catbird number one quarter million. Um, so the quarter millionth bird banded at Manomet was last year, and that was, that was a gray catbird. And so over that time, um, we can identify the birds as individuals with the fish and wildlife bands. We will get information on not just when does the first bird come back, when is the first bluebird, probably everyone's seen their first bluebird by now, they're coming earlier and earlier, um, but also what is the median of the population and is that really a significant statistical change for those birds. Trevor Lloyd Evans here from Manomet. We'll talk more with him, but we want to get to some of our regular features on our show. First of all, I want to say thank you again to some new ambassadors who are handing out cards uh, to promote our show and birds and conservation. And our latest uh, ambassadors, our latest volunteers, include Angela in Groveport, Ohio, just southeast of Columbus. Thank you, Angela. We also want to thank a good friend of ours, Jim Sweeney. Many of you here at Manomet or here at Wildlands probably know Jim. He's a great uh, birder in the Massachusetts area from East Bridgewater. Thank you, Jim. And uh, William in Stockholm, Wisconsin. We had the pleasure of meeting William and his folks in Michigan last year when we broadcast our show from Lake Superior State University in Sault Ste. Marie. So Talking Birds listeners, wherever you are, we hope you will join our Ambassadors program, hand out some of our cards. It's easy to do. Just go to the contact button at our website, TalkingBirds.com, and uh, choose the Become an Ambassador option. In a little bit, we'll do our Mystery Bird Contest. We want to do a little preview so you'll be ready to call in uh, when we do the actual contest. So we'll give you a little clue here about our, a little preview clue kind of on our mystery bird contest. Um, here's the, here's one of the sounds of our mystery bird. Nice, huh? That's our mystery bird. Uh, it's one of those birds that looks better than it sounds. It's a large, dark wading bird, mostly bronze and reddish-brown in color, with iridescent green and purplish wings, tail and lower back. It winters in Florida and the Gulf Coast and points south and breeds along most of the East Coast as far north as Maine, feeding on fish and frogs and probing in the mud for insects. That would be our mystery bird. Uh, that's a little preview. We'll do the actual contest uh, when the bird stops making noise and uh, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, quickly, some of the items we have on our Facebook page this week. This is pretty timely. Anthropologist Barbara King explores links between global warming and migratory bird behavior as new research on white storks shows that some overwintered in their usual location in Africa, while some simply went elsewhere in Europe instead. Speaking of white birds, our friend Mike Militia, writing for Audubon.org, offers tips 
on meeting the challenge of photographing birds with white plumage. We'll link you to that. And how do some high-soaring birds manage the turbulence up there? The answer could ultimately mean smoother flying airplanes. That's some of what we have for you on our Facebook page right now. You can also find those stories through an online search if you're not a Facebook follower. Still to come on our show today, more with Manomet's Trevor Lloyd Evans and what the birds are telling us about climate change. And we'll get more good advice on feeding birds in your backyard with our man Mike O'Connor, just back from Bend, Oregon, chasing Lewis's woodpecker. And up next, a bird that nurtures its nectar needs without passing along any pollen is today's featured feathered friend. Talking Birds is made possible in part by Celestron, a leading optics company offering binoculars and spotting scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron is dedicated to education and bird conservation and proudly supports many nonprofit organizations that share the same commitment. Celestron says, we care about birds and nature in our backyard as well as yours. Enhance your view with Celestron. Visit Celestron.com and discover more. Sweeter than a bird that grow in the trees, that's what she meant to me. Sweeter than a wine and she looks so fine and she met me in Tennessee. If you discovered a bird that spends the summer in Canada and the winter in Mexico, would you name it the Tennessee Warbler? Maybe not, but that's what the great American ornithologist Alexander Wilson did, because one day one of these birds was in Tennessee, and so was he. He happened to see it passing through in migration. The Tennessee is not the most colorful of warblers, with olive upper parts and pale whitish underparts. But it kind of makes up for that with its distinctive song. The Tennessee warbler is sometimes called a thief because on its wintering grounds in tropical forests, it pierces the base of flowers to get the nectar instead of probing the flower from the front. If it did that, as other birds do, it would get pollen on its face and help in the pollination process. But because of its piercing technique, the Tennessee gets the nectar and leaves the pollen behind. The Tennessee warbler is only one of several warblers named for places where it neither breeds nor winters, including warblers named for Nashville, Cape May, and Connecticut. So Alexander Wilson created some naming confusion with this bird. And another Alexander may have had a better idea. Because the bird often winters in plantations where a certain kind of beverage-producing bean is grown, neotropical ornithologist Alexander Scotch suggested that a better name for the bird would be the coffee warbler. But that name hasn't caught on, at least not yet. By the way, that volunteer state music we're hearing is sung by those surfing 60s singers Jan and Dean. Yeah, I know, they're not from Tennessee either. Today's Talkin' Birds featured feathered friend, still officially known as the Tennessee Warbler. Thanks again for being with us. Our show number 622 and coming to you live today from Wildlands Trust here in Plymouth, Massachusetts. We hope you'll visit our website. It's up there all the time at TalkinBirds.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at TalkinBirds. And we're back here with Trevor Lloyd Evans, Manomet's Land Bird Conservation Program Director. Manomet, that wonderful 
research organization, also located here in Plymouth, Massachusetts, in the village of Manomet. So Trevor, how big, talk about the impact of climate change on birds. I think the average person would think, well, how would that really affect birds? But it, how big is it? How big is the effect? I think that uh, we're very lucky because I was going to say if birds don't like the change in climate, they would vote with their feet, but I guess they vote with their wings in this sense. Um, they are extremely sensitive indicators. And I think there's just a long history of that. We've probably all heard about the canary in the coal mine. The canaries are very sensitive. They could pick up carbon monoxide levels before it got to the miners. We again found with the persistent chemicals in the 1940s and 50s and 60s that we were using as pesticides and using to control mosquitoes, using to control uh, malaria, that again, the birds were sensitive indicators. And not only was it bioconcentrating up through all of the birds to the top predators, like our bald eagle or like our brown pelican, um, but also they were then becoming eggshell thinning, they were becoming infertile, and eventually were extirpated over fairly large areas. And that catches our attention. And I think that's the important part about it. Um, from the birds' point of view, yes, the climate's warming, the vegetation is gradually changing, and they will adapt to that or not by moving northwards or not, by avoiding areas where the sea is rising or not. And so, again, I think we can look forward over the next century to birds being extremely um, sensitive indicators. And that's why so many bird organizations like Wildlands Trust and Mass Audubon and Manimet and many others are, uh, are continuing our long-term research to, to alert us of these trends in a, in a timely manner. How about the rising temperatures themselves and affecting migration? How does this cause birds to, to migrate earlier or arrive on their, on their breeding grounds earlier? The birds generally by migrate and triggered by the change in light, but temperatures too. Right, two answers to that. Depends where you are in the winter. So if you're a migrant bird and you are in the southern part of the United States, then you will detect the warmer spring and you will begin to move northwards a little warmer. What you're really trying to do with most of the land birds that I deal with mostly is you're trying to get back just about now. This is perfect. We're looking out at buds coming out into leaf. Many of us have seen the first of the little green caterpillars, including gypsy moths that we don't like. Um, but the idea is that as the leaf out happens and as the insects then begin to move into the foliage, that's the peak time for you to get back on migration, hit that peak of, uh, that peak of food abundance, and then either nest here or move on to your breeding area. Unfortunately, if you are wintering down in the Amazon, how do you know it's a warmer spring up here? And so we're seeing a distinct difference. The birds that can adapt are coming back a few days earlier, but that's significant. And the birds that cannot adapt are not. And in some places in Europe, that has actually led to the point where they're missing out on that peak of food abundance and even the, the sort of lifetime reproductive fitness, to use the fancy words, the number of kids they produce has been dropping and the populations are actually dropping. And that's a really strong indicator. And Arctic birds, if I'm correct, Trevor, are especially vulnerable to climate change. Can you talk a bit about that? Especially vulnerable because the climate is changing that much more rapidly. Manomet has done a lot of work in the Arctic. My colleague uh, Stephen Brown is out in San Francisco talking about it right now. We're working with the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, the Canadians, even the Russians occasionally. And what we're finding there is that the um, melting of the sea ice in the Arctic leads to a feedback mechanism. So instead of the sunlight bouncing down off the white reflective sea ice, 
the heat is now being absorbed by the darker water as it melts and then the darker water warms and the warmer water melts more ice and we get into that sort of a feedback. So what we have actually seen is an advance of shrubs northwards into what used to be tundra, terrific area for breeding ducks and shorebirds, and we're also seeing coastal erosion um, as the waves are now coming in and hitting the permafrost on the edge of the Arctic Ocean and the whole thing is just falling in. So tremendous differences there, not to mention the amount of uh, greenhouse gases that are released as the tundra itself melts. So that's our, that's, that's our climate lab right there. And for birds who aren't moving north uh, as they are shifting north uh, as the climate change continues and, and increases, it's, there's a limit to how far north they can go. There certainly is. Yes, if you are a cardinal, and a hundred years ago there were very few cardinals in Massachusetts, they have now moved north, as have some other species, they're doing just fine. But if you are a Bicknell's thrush that one of my colleagues, Chris Rimmer at VCE, is studying up in the, uh, in, the, in the hills of Vermont, they're already breeding on the tops of mountains as the vegetation changes and as other species move upwards, where are they going to go? And so it's a problem of, in the Arctic, there is nowhere to go once you hit the Beaufort Sea, and on top of a mountain in Vermont, there's nowhere to go once your vegetation changes. Trevor, give us your website, if you would, so folks could find out more about the work that you do at Manomet. Very easy to find us, we're www.manomet.org. Manomet.org, and folks here at Wildlands, how about a little round of applause? A big round of applause for Trevor Lloyd Evans. Thank you. Thank you, Trevor. Coming up next, it's our mystery bird contest in just one minute. A wise person once said, although we may regret some things we do in life, the bigger regrets concern things we didn't do. One thing many people say they've just got to do someday is visit the Galapagos Islands, which inspired the world-changing work of Charles Darwin. Well, if you're one of those people, I say don't wait any longer. I'm Ray Brown, inviting you to go to the Galapagos with me and one of the finest small group touring companies on the planet, Sunrise Birding. Thanks to their expertise, we'll have a chance to see things other tours don't, like red-footed and Nazca boobies and flightless cormorants, along with Darwin's finches, Galapagos tortoises, land and marine iguanas, sea lions, whales and dolphins. We'll even snorkel with Galapagos penguins. I'll be your host for this trip, joined by local experts as we explore the islands via custom-designed first-class yacht. Please check out the details on this trip of a lifetime right now at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. Talking Birds is made possible in part by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, a world leader in the study, appreciation, and conservation of birds. Please check them out at birds.cornell.edu. That's birds. .cornell.edu. If you're not hearing our show live on Sunday morning, 9.30 to 10 Eastern, remember you can find us live online. Pretty easy to do. Just go to TalkingBirds.com and find us there. And um, if you'd like to listen to our podcasts, they're available on a bunch of places there, including Stitchers, our latest uh, podcast app. Not that I know how any of those things work, but I know that happens. that's a true fact. 781-837-4900 is the number. That's 781-837-4900. Here is the sound of our mystery bird. One second, Ray, sorry. That, was that it? No, that wasn't it. I don't think that was it. We're going to hear it in a second here. We can, we can play it locally here if we need to because we did that uh, earlier. Um, but uh, anyway, in the meantime, our prize for the mystery bird contest, the Droll Yankees window mount songbird feeder 
with the unique songbird and blueberries design and a clear view of the birds right at your window. It holds two cups of seed, fruit, or mealworms. Our mystery bird is a large, dark, wading bird, mostly bronze and reddish-brown in color, with iridescent green and purplish wings, tail and lower back. It winters in Florida in the Gulf Coast and points south, breeds along most of the east coast as far north as Maine. Our bird feeds on fish and frogs and probes in the mud for insects. It makes this really beautiful sound. 781-837-4900 is the number. That's 781-837-4900. Don't wait. Don't let us run out of time before you call. Call in and tell us what it is or take your guess because if no correct answer is received, a drawing will determine our winner. 781-837-4900. The quicker you call, the quicker we can shut off this bird here. <laughs> 781-837-4900. Meanwhile, we'll check in with Mike O'Connor, just back from the West Coast. Let's ask Mike live in just one minute. A wise person once said, although we may regret some things we do in life, the bigger regrets concern things we didn't do. One thing many people say they've just got to do someday is visit the Galapagos Islands, which inspired the world-changing work of Charles Darwin. Well, if you're one of those people, I say don't wait any longer. I'm Ray Brown, inviting you to go to the Galapagos with me and one of the finest small group touring companies on the planet, Sunrise Birding. Thanks to their expertise, we'll have a chance to see things other tours don't, like red-footed and Nazca boobies and flightless cormorants, along with Darwin's finches, Galapagos tortoises, land and marine iguanas, sea lions, whales and dolphins. We'll even snorkel with Galapagos penguins. I'll be your host for this trip, joined by local experts as we explore the islands via custom-designed first-class yacht. Please check out the details on this trip of a lifetime right now at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. Next time you're shopping for wild bird food, look for Audubon Park. It's the finest kind, and you can choose from more than a dozen selections, including no-waste patio blends and species-specific blends. And the folks at Audubon Park encourage all who feed backyard birds to follow these important rules to help keep birds safe and healthy. Choose seed made in the USA. Fill your feeders with no more than a week's supply of food. Clean your feeders weekly with soap and hot water or a solution of bleach and water. Make your windows visible to birds to prevent crashes. Place feeders away from windows and safe from predators. Offer water for drinking and bathing and refresh it daily. Keep cats indoors. Reduce your lawn, mow it less often, and skip the fertilizers and pesticides. Plant native shrubs and trees. And keep outdoor lights as dim as possible and use them only when necessary. Simple rules for healthy birds from the folks at Audubon Park Wild Bird Food. And for a complete list of backyard bird feeding tips, visit the Discovery Center at AudubonPark.com. That's AudubonPark.com. Bum, bum. I can tell you're there, Mike. You just uh, improvised. That was dead there. On perfect. There. That was our friend Debbie Bleacher here. Could you give a round of applause yeah, for nice Debbie? Job, she, Deb. she did a nice, a nice job there. Uh, is, is community audition still on? Because that would be a perfect. <laughs> we need to bring back Dave Maynard. We'd have a <laughs> right. Hey, Mike, I know you're just back from Bend, Oregon, out there chasing the Lewis's woodpecker, and I think you you found it, right? Yeah, we did okay. I don't know if any of your listeners been to Bend, Oregon, but it's a really cool birding place. Bend is a little bit of a trendy town stuck in the middle of uh, central Oregon, and if you go uh, a little bit west of town, just a little bit, you get into this wonderful woodpecker habitat. As a matter of fact, they claim that they have the best diversity of woodpeckers of any location 
in North America, and we went there and we saw <laughs> Lewis's. We also saw uh, redhead, redhead. <laughs> I can do this. White-headed woodpeckers <laughs> and uh, red-breasted woodpeckers and Williamson's wood, uh, sapsuckers. Um, they were really, really cool. But if you just go the other uh, part of town, you head east. Like we stayed in this cabin just east of town, and just walking around the cabin, there were California quail and sage phoebes and golden crown sparrows and ferruginous hawks and um, mm. mountain bluebirds and, and, and bush tits. I guess you can say that in the radio still. And it was really cool. Just in this little tiny area, and you can drive around, you see assorted habitats. You go from the desert to the mountains, all within a small area. We even saw the sage grouse uh, on their legs doing their courtship mm. things, the greatest sage grouse. It's a really cool place. I've been there a couple of times, and uh, maybe that's, that'd be a perfect live spot for you guys someday. Because the live spot right. for you guys always go perfectly. So I think that would be a great thing. <laughs> exactly. We build in a couple of mistakes in each of our lives. <laughs> Just to make them unique. And thanks for doing so, this show because yeah. I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to that location. It sounds awesome. So it's on my list to get there this spring. For sure. It is an awesome place. Could everyone give, invite Mike to come down here? Come on. How about that? Oh, cool. Okay. Now All you, right. I'm hanging up and going. <laughs> now you have to come here. Yeah, All right, Mike. Well, uh, well, we're looking for some of those pictures. We'll put them on our Facebook page. If you have any, if not, as we suggested earlier, just download some from the Internet. And uh, we'll, <laughs> and we'll right. attach your... Know. All right. We'll talk to you next week, Mike. Sounds great. We'll talk about Orioles because they're coming back right away. Yeah, okay. And we're hearing a lot about orchard Orioles around this part of the country, oh, by the man, way. That's which cool. is kind yeah, of that's beautiful. That right, is we'll very cool. That. We'll do that up next week. All right. Thank you, Mike. Mike O'Connor from the famous Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year illegally. Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor with a desire to preserve living space for wildlife. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust does just that, works with private landowners to protect wildlife to preserve natural habitats. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE, or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Back here now to the mystery bird contest, trying to identify this mystery bird, fellas. Can you play that thing? We don't really want to hear it anyway. It's a horrible-sounding bird. Uh, but we can, uh, we can play it from, from right here. I guess we should, should do that. It's only part of the routine. Okay, our mystery bird, a large dark wading bird, mostly bronze and reddish brown in color with iridescent green and purplish wings, tail and lower back at winters in Florida and the Gulf Coast and points south and breeds along most of the east coast as far north as Maine. Our friend Charlie is in Hanover, Massachusetts with us. Good morning, Charlie. Hey, Ray, how you been? Doing well. Say hi to the folks at Wildlands Trust here, Charlie. That's awesome. What a beautiful day to be out. <laughs> it is indeed. What do you think the mystery bird is, Charlie? I'm going to guess a reddish egret. Reddish egret. Anybody here want to re respond to that? We're going to, well, they're not saying anything. Just giving it a couple of thumbs down. Nothing personal, Charlie. Okay. All right. Yeah, Thank and you, that was our wrong buzzer. Love Thank the, you, Charlie. Love the Thank you so much. We go to Jim somewhere in Georgia. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Good morning. We're in Georgia, Jim. Ella J. Ella J. Georgia. Nice. Yep. Beautiful country down there, right? Indeed. How about our mystery bird, Jim? What do you say? Let's try a green heron. Let's try a green heron. Let's vocalize on this, folks. Green heron. 
Sorry about that, Jim. We're, we're usually more hospitable here in Massachusetts, but I guess not this time. It's all. Hey, Jim, try us again. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Jim. All right. All right, 781-837-4900 is the number on our mystery bird contest trying to identify that large, dark waiting bird and give away this beautiful Droll Yankees songbird feeder with a unique songbird and blueberry design that offers a clear view of the birds right at your window. Susan is in Yarmouthport, Massachusetts, on beautiful Cape Cod. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Ray. And speaking Good of morning. orchid orioles, I saw one here yesterday. Wow, nice. That seems like a, a banner year, doesn't it, for Orchard Orioles? Yeah, he uh, actually, he came to my uh, hummingbird feeder, and so did the uh, Baltimore Oriole. Oh, so nice. It was, it was we'll a be, great day. We'll be over at your yard a little later, Susan, after the show. <laughs> what well, about our mystery? Yeah, my guess is oh. the Glossy Ibis. Glossy Ibis, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Absolutely right. Nice job. Oh, thank Glossy you. Glossy Ibis, right. You're welcome. Stay on the line, Susan. We'll arrange to send you that Droll Yankees feeder. Thank you very much. I enjoy your program. Right. Thank you very much, Susan. And our program is just about to end, and we're so thrilled to be here at Wildlands Trust in Plymouth. We hope you'll check them out on the web at wildlandstrust.org. Next week, we'll be joined in studio by a high school teacher named Steve McGuire and a couple of his students at one of the three high schools in the entire country, we're told, that has a regular program focused on the study of birds. That's right, high school ornithology on our next Talking Birds show. Executive producer of Talking Birds, Mark Duffield, our associate producer, Debbie Bleacher. Engineers today, Larry Nelson and Jesse Wilkins. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Or Lean's Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.